Um, okay, well, we're very lucky uh, tonight to be joined by Professor John Lennox. Um, he needs no introduction, but I'm going to introduce him anyways. <laughs> um, so Professor Lennox was born and raised in Northern Ireland. He went on to gain his master's and his PhD in mathematics from Cambridge University um, with a dissertation entitled Centrality and Permu Permutability in Soluble Groups. He also holds an MA and a DPhil from Oxford University by incorporation and an MA in bioethics from the University of Surrey. Currently, he's an emeritus professor of maths at Oxford, having specialized in group theory during his professorship, an emeritus fellow of maths and the philosophy of science at Green Templeton College, and also an associate fellow of the Said Business School. Um, as far as I know, he's physically based in Oxford um, with his family. Um, Professor Lennox has spoken and taught extensively, extensively all over the world, and he's also written many books. Some of his recent titles include Can Science Explain Everything, uh, which he wrote in 2019 on the relationship between science and Christianity, uh, 2084 about artificial intelligence, and Where is God in a Coronavirus World, um, which he obviously wrote quite recently. Um, in addition to over 70 published mathematical papers, he is also the co-author of two research-level texts in algebra in the Oxford Mathematical Monographs series. Um, yeah, so a very warm welcome to you, Professor Lennox. Thank you very much. <clears throat> I'm delighted to be with you and look forward to the discussion this evening. Cool. Um, well, on that note, could we maybe start by uh, just hearing a little bit about you and your background? Um, what type of family did you grow up in and how did you come to faith and how did you first become interested in maths and science? Well, as you mentioned, I'm originally from Northern Ireland and my parents were very keen Christians and my father ran a a store which employed, I suppose, a general store up to 30 or 40 people in its heyday. And they were very interesting people because their Christianity was credible. Well, you ask when I came to faith, and I love the ambiguity there, faith in what? Because the first faith I knew about was faith in my parents. It was trusting them and learning that they lived what they actually preached and believed. And that was very important to me because we lived in a very troubled time, the so-called troubles in Northern Ireland, which started in the late 60s, went on till the 90s. And my father was bombed several times because he employed both Catholics and Protestants, which was a very risky thing to do. And I asked him once, why do you do that? And he said, look, scripture tells us clearly that every man and woman, whatever they believe, is made in the image of God. And I want to treat them like that. That taught me a very deep lesson because it was a costly one for my parents. The second thing is that although they were very keen believers, they loved me enough to give me space. They encouraged me to think. They helped teach me to think, even though their formal education was not very high. And so I grew up in a very inquiring family where they not only encouraged me to get to know scripture, which they did very well, 
but they also encouraged me to look at other worldviews. And I remember, I was suppose I was 14, my father handed me the Communist Manifesto. And I said, is that for me to read? He said, yes. I said, why? He said, you need to know what other people think. And those things make a very deep impression. And when I left school to go to Cambridge, I didn't abandon my Christian faith because I'd learned to think about it. So many of my contemporaries, it never was made personal for them. And once they got away from home, any pretense of Christianity disappeared overnight. So I had a remarkable foundation when I went up to university. And it has stood me in good stead ever since. Thanks for sharing that. You do sound like you've, uh, you had very unusual parents. Um, yes. Um, so a little bit about mathematics itself um, before we move on. Could you explain in the most simple terms um, possible what maths is? And um, do you think that its findings are true with a capital T? Uh, for example, or sort of to embellish my question, um, do you think that mathematical truths uh, are more true, more fundamental than scientific truths, for example? And um, this is quite, it's getting quite convoluted, but another way of getting at what I'm interested in is to ask, do you think that two plus two equals four is so true that it will even be true in heaven when everything about this earth has passed away? Well, the first, the answer to your first question is, of course not. Mathematics <laughs> is extremely complicated. It's as if you ask me, tell me what language is. And it's like um, everybody knows what time is, said Augustine, until you try to define it. It's one of those things where you've got to approach it in different kinds of ways. Often, people's first encounter with mathematics is by doing it, by doing geometry, by doing arithmetic, or by learning something of the history of mathematics. Because of course, it consists of a vast number of actual individual disciplines, geometry, algebra, calculus, um, and so on and so forth. And it's very difficult to give a definition of course, we would start with arithmetic and that kind of thing. And uh, you mentioned two plus two equals four and raised the question of truth. Well, now, this is uh, quite a thorny question because there are two kinds of mathematics, roughly speaking. There's pure mathematics, which tends to be abstract, thinking about numbers, thinking about abstract quantities and algebra and so on. And in the old days, the good old days, I would say, when we learned geometry from Euclid at school, we learned about an axiomatic system. And one of the goals of certain branches of mathematics is to axiomatize systems. That means that your mathematical system is built up on axioms that you accept. And then you use accepted rules of logic to get to your theorems and conclusions. So you ask, are they true? Within the system, if the proof is correct, they are. But of course, the axioms are something you assume to begin with. So the whole question now is philosophically, how do you apply the normal criteria of truth, 
the two main ones being coherence and secondly corresponds with reality and one of the amazing things about mathematics is that here's a mathematician and she's thinking in her head and she comes up with some very clever equation and lo and behold it describes something or appears to very accurately something going on in the universe out there and Eugene Wigner who won the Nobel Prize for Physics he called this the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics it's totally unreasonable that it should work I say it's unreasonable only if you assume atheism or naturalism it's not unreasonable if you assume theism so the truth question is in a sense a relative question and you can go deeper than that because there's a brilliant Austrian mathematician called Kurt Gödel and he shook the mathematical world quite a while ago he was a friend of Einstein's when he showed that mathematics is incomplete there are any system that's big enough to contain arithmetic so it hasn't got to be very large has got true things that you cannot prove but then the shattering thing was you cannot prove within that system that the system itself is consistent so you cannot have absolute certainty so that's the way I begin to look at that thank you <laughs> um could you comment just a bit on what maths will look like in heaven or I mean do you think that you'll carry on um being an emeritus professor of maths um, in heaven. <laughs> well, the answer to that question is no, of course not. But on the other hand, I would want to say that scripture reveals that there are going to be new heavens and a new earth. Now, the use of those words tells me that it cannot be so dissimilar to what we've experienced so that those words are meaningless. Mm -hmm. And we're told that God's servants will serve him. Well, we're told concepts like you shall rule over many cities and all this kind of thing so various concepts that we have experienced on earth like government and rule and all this kind of thing will be maintained now if you come back to the academic world academic work was started in genesis as i hope you realize where the very first exercise given to human beings was to name the animals now that's taxonomy it's the beginning of biology but you all being graduates know that taxonomy is actually the fundamental intellectual discipline you all know names of things that I don't know and the, the others don't know we're engaged in the world of naming and taming as they call it so that God who made us in his own image made us creative and therefore I expect that there be mathematics and lots more that we cannot even dream of in the world to come. So the one thing I'd say to you is it's not going to be boring sitting up there playing harps and wondering what to do next. It's going to be infinitely interesting. That's good news. Um, okay, so uh, you mentioned the sort of unreasonable efficacy of, of mathematics or um, the idea that someone could think of a, a mathematical equation in their mind and it matches reality somehow. Um, so that sort of segues into my next question. Um, there's a, a, a famous mathematician called Srinivasa Ramanujan 
um, who went to your alma mater, Cambridge, in the early 1900s. He said, so speaking about the relation between someone's mind and reality, that's where the link is. Um, he said that an equation means nothing to him unless it expresses a thought of God. Um, what do you make of this? And um, what do you think he meant by it? And um, yeah, what do you make of that kind of connection between divinity and mathematics itself? Well, coming from a Hindu Brahmin, a religious Brahmin, I would say that's essentially a statement within the framework of a pantheistic worldview. So that God is perceived to be in everything and is seen in everything, including mathematics. And it's well known that Ramanujam, who was an absolute genius, uh, felt that mathematics revealed patterns and these patterns helped him to get closer to God as he perceived God to be and his creation. But as a Christian, I would say that this is another example of being made in the image of God. Now, there's a great deal of discussion as to whether mathematics is created or invented. And partly, probably because I'm Irish, I want to have it both ways. I, I think mathematics is giving us a handle on reality, which is utterly remarkable. And we do invent things. We are creative. But ultimately, that reality was created with God, and it is describable in mathematics. And one of the supreme foundations of my rejection of atheism is that the universe is mathematically intelligible. It actually plays a very important role in my thinking of the relationship, the whole business to the Christian worldview. Let me put it this way. One of the reasons that I believe in God is because we can do mathematics. There's an intelligibility and a rationality out there that I believe that atheism fails completely to account for. It goes beyond the natural, but we may come to that in a little while. Yeah. Um, thank you. Um, so, okay, when it comes to describing uh, God's creation using mathematics, um, perhaps that's a way of describing what you do. Um, well, yeah, let me just ask my question how I, how I wrote it. So uh, from a Christian point of view, it's very easy to see the usefulness of, in terms of kingdom building, of working in a field like poverty alleviation or medical science, because these both, both serve people's physical needs. But it's more difficult to explain the purpose of studying highly abstract fields like mathematics. Um, or things like entomology, which might involve studying a very rare breed of butterfly somewhere in the Amazon jungle. Um, to put it crudely, what is the point of studying highly abstract questions, which might not have sort of obvious practical ramifications um, in terms of building God's kingdom? My first reaction to that is to say, what was the point of naming the animals, which is a very abstract discipline? that God has created us to be curious about our world. And if we read Genesis and ask ourselves, what is it telling us about the nature of what it means to be a human being? Then we have to go not to the first account of creation, but the second one, where we discover that human beings are made of physical stuff. Uh, there's so much material, so much matter. But then we read that they're alive, 
And the next thing we read, that they have an aesthetic sense. God made the trees good to look upon and good for food. And that aesthetic sense is part of that image of God. And presumably God created the trees good to look upon by humans because the satisfaction of the aesthetic sense was important dimension to what it means to be alive. And what I feel is very important is before we go into a question like the one you've asked, let's see what, how the Bible conceives life to be. Now, there, I could spend a long time on this, because, and I've written about it, because it's extremely important. What Genesis 2 does is build us a picture of what life is from ground up. We have an aesthetic sense, but then we discover that this garden is fascinating because it's got four rivers and if you follow them out you'll find a region where there's gold and the gold is good what's that talking about well uh, to me it's a it's a wonderful way of just pointing up that humans are curious we follow the rivers and every one of you who's a research student is doing exactly that today you're following rivers of ideas unless you're a geophysicist who's or a geographer following actual rivers. So Genesis is gradually building up. Then it tells us we got work to do. Well, the first work was what? It was actually looking after a garden. It was agriculture. And then you have the question of relationships between men and women. Then you have the highest is then the relationship with God, which is morally based. And this is hugely important because the whole setting of the forbidden fruit, you can eat everything except that one thing, tells me two things. One, they were free to do it, otherwise the prohibition is meaningless. So they could say yes or no, and that's the biggest gift any of us have got, is the capacity to say yes or no. And that means love is possible it means morality is possible so here we are as moral beings with all these attributes and now you ask what's the point of doing an abstract subject well it's not as simple as that i'll bet most of you have got a smartphone or a computer the kind of mathematics that involved in inventing that computer that you regard as indispensable is highly sophisticated and it depends very crucially on a concept that seemed ridiculous when it was first thought of the idea of the square root of minus one so that uh, the point is it's much more complex than we can say now what we all have to do is we've only got one life to live and as christians then we have to decide how we're going to proportion our lives helping other people as you say and so on but i don't like the idea that people who say mathematics isn't practical defining practical is as difficult as defining mathematics so there are separate questions to ask uh, that what exactly do we mean by this question of the kingdom of god right um thank you and I have another one of those separate questions uh, coming along next. Um, so essentially, yeah, what does it mean to build the kingdom of God? Um, something that's, so any, so as you've explained, there's all manner of different activities, which 
um, are essentially human activities, which qualify as the type of work that God designed us to do, um, no matter how sort of stereotypically practical or abstract. Um, but if we think of a given activity, let's say um, giving to charity, if someone does that in the name of God and another person does it for whatever other reason, is it fair to say, or is it true to say that one person is thereby building the kingdom of God and the other person is not? Or what does it mean essentially to build the kingdom of God? Well, building the kingdom of God is not a biblical concept. That's the first thing <laughs> we read in the New Testament about building the church, but not building the kingdom of God. If you ask me about the kingdom of God, I'm a mathematician, and so I like definitions. And I go back to what Jesus said about the kingdom of God. He didn't say build it. He said, mm -hmm. seek it. The mm -hmm. kingdom of God is. Now, what does that mean? The kingdom of God is God's rule. It's not an area of land or space or cyberspace. It's God's rule. And therefore, seeking the kingdom of God is seeking God's rule in my life. Now, the very interesting thing is that statement occurs in the Sermon on the Mount. And it occurs where Jesus is discussing the motivation for our everyday life. He's talking about um, food and clothing and everything else. And after quite a bit of description of the various things that we, we do with our money and so on, he, he says, you know, God knows you need all those things and the Gentiles seek after them. That is, that's a pagan concept of why you work. Now, many people have not realized that this section in Matthew 6 is about motivation for work. If you go out into the street of Oxford, and stop anybody and say, why do you work? Well, he might say, I have a wife and five children. I've got to work or something like this. In other words, it's food, clothing and housing. But Jesus says, look, that's pagan motivation. Now, that's a very sharp rebuke. I've thought about it for years and I'm going to publish a book on it. But I want to say something about it now because it's directly germane to your question. Seek God's kingdom. That's what you're to do and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Now, what I believe Jesus is doing is explaining the difference between the goal of work and the byproducts of work. The byproducts of work, whether you're in a postdoc, your pay, or you're in a job, your pay, or whatever, that's a byproduct of work. But what's the goal supposed to be? What's the fundamental motivation? It's seeking God's kingdom. That is, your work is designed by the Lord to be an experience of God's rule in your life. Now, that completely transforms work ethic. That every day I go into work where it's doing philosophy, mathematics in the pastorate, or doing Chinese philosophy, or underwater um, investigation of flora and fauna and so on. I can say, Lord, teach me today something about your government. Now, here's the thing. There isn't any kind of work, including, be it noted, academic work, 
that doesn't raise moral questions. Seek his kingdom. What does that mean? Seek his righteousness. So I understand this to be saying that God intends us to learn morality in our workplace, not sitting at home drinking coffee. And that's a hugely high standard. And I'll tell you a story that taught me this when I was a, in my early 20s, and I never forgot it. A young man said that he'd, he was a Christian, an electrician. His first job, which he was very proud of, was doing the electrical wiring in new houses. And after two weeks, the boss called him in and was absolutely furious with him. What are you doing? He said, what do you mean, what am I doing? I'm being very careful. I'm, I'm doing the, the wiring under the floor so that there's no fire risk. And the boss said, who sees under the floor? And this young Christian, 19, said, my Lord does. He lost his job on the spot, but he got another one. I remember thinking, that chap's much younger than you. Have you got that far? That sense of God being interested in you following his righteousness in your work. Now, I think that is a, a kind of framework that we can bring to bear in all our work, whether it's paid or not. That's not relevant to it. It's, it exalts work and gives it a tremendous value so that people don't think, as many students do, oh, I wish I could get this French translation done quickly so that I could get on with the gospel. That's not seeing your work as something given by God. So if that is the case, work is the norm for a Christian. That is the kind of work that Paul referred to when he said, if anyone will not work, neither let them eat. Notice he didn't say if anyone doesn't work. If anyone will not work. There are many young people in our country, especially today, who would love to work, but no one gives them a job. So work is designed by God to support our living. And that's the norm for Christians. God may call some of them to do teaching full-time, but the norm, and I've regarded that all my life. But then, in that work, I am to seek God's government. Now, that will affect what I do with what I've got, including the question of giving to charity. Now, of course, there are several sides to this. There's the benefit side. If I give to charity and someone who doesn't share my worldview gives to charity, that benefits the recipient, clearly. Is that a good thing? Of course it is. And there's an example in the New Testament to teach that. It's the story of Cornelius. Cornelius was giving alms and all this kind of stuff, and he was not, as the story tells us, yet a Christian believer. And God noticed this and sent Peter along so that he could get converted. So there's a wonderful story to tell us that God is not neutral to righteous acts of good, no matter who does them. And that is extremely important. We're not left to solve that knot. We are left to be responsible as stewards for what we have. And most of us are experts at knowing what to do if only we had. But we're required to be stewards of of what we have and seek God's government in that as well. And be careful how we judge other people. And of course, to make sure that we balance our um, charity, if you like, financial with our concern 
to communicate the Christian gospel to people. We need to keep a balance. How do we do that? By seeking God's kingdom. And so I would strongly emphasize that this business of seeking the kingdom is the curious thing, is the key thing. If you want to call it building the kingdom, do, but the Bible nowhere does. Thank you very much. Um, how does this apply what you, uh, what you just said to um, sort of feelings of academic anxiety, which are so common in Oxford? Um, you mentioned uh, so seeking God's kingdom, God's rule in each of our own lives and each of our own work. Um, but to use your story about the electrician, I mean, um, I know some people in Oxford who, upon hearing that type of story, might want to go further and become the best electrician in the whole town and stay up until 3 a.m. every morning and doing the wiring under every floorboard, etc., um, to the point of unhealth um of yeah course. i mean for an, and oh, sorry sorry to interrupt but as an example um i i know of a professor who also works in the sciences in oxford and he says that even at his stage um his colleagues are still sort of quite unhealthily interested in who's smarter than who um which is a very sad thing in my mind um so yeah what what do you um say about how this idea of God's rule in our life um, should change our attitude towards work and achievement. Um, well, profoundly, yeah. first of all, that God values us, not because of what we do, but because of who we are. You see, it's open to every one of us to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness. That's not a matter of ability. Mm -hmm. It's a matter of character. And when it comes to ability, the best example in the New Testament is given in terms of spiritual abilities, which many people have in the church and so on. And Paul uses himself as a chopping block. And he said, look, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, and if I know all prophecies, and if I give all my goods to the poor, but have not love, I am nothing. Now that's Paul saying it, not me. And the implication of that is profound. What he's saying is that he can have all the gifts you like, all the abilities you like, and they're effective. They benefit other people. There'd be absolutely no value to him personally. Now, getting that orientation into our heads is a very difficult battle for most of us because we get inflated egos and all the rest of it. That's, that's one side of it. I would say that this is a battle to be content with the significance God gives us. Now, there's a famous story in the Bible, and you all know it, it's the Tower of Babel. And the whole idea was, let's make a name for ourselves, build a city and a tower that reached to heaven. Now, this is, of course, advanced engineering, it's intellectual pride of the first order. And they built a remarkably impressive civilization. You can see some of it in the British Museum. They were reaching for heaven. Let us make a name for ourselves. Now, this is the issue you're asking me about. What is this business about making a name for myself? Well, I would simply say this. Immediately after the story of Babel, God calls a man called Abraham. And he says to Abraham, come and leave all of that and 
I will make your name great. The contrast is profound. There are only two ways really of living and we find a tension between the two within, within ourselves. The first is wrestling, pushing other colleagues down, trying to be the top person, making our name great, or learning to trust God for our significance. Now, I'm not saying trusting God for our conversion. We got to learn uh, that, of course, is true. But trusting God at these deep levels of significance is something with which many people wrestle. I was fortunate to be taught a very sharp lesson on this at Cambridge. I had dinner with the Nobel Prize winner just by accident. It was a college scholarship dinner. And I tried to talk to him as I do with everybody by asking questions. And I asked him, had any of his research that won the Nobel Prize ever led to him thinking there might be a God behind the universe. And he was quite irritated and angry. So being wise, even at that age of 19, I changed the subject and thought that was a finish. But after the meal, he said, Lennox, come to my room. It was a command, it wasn't an invitation. So I went there and he'd invited several other senior members of the university, no students. And as I recall it, they put me on a chair and he said, do you want a career in mathematics? I said, yes, sir. Well, he said, in front of witnesses tonight, give up this vague, ridiculous notion of God, because I'm going to tell you something. It will cripple you intellectually. You'll never make it. You will suffer by contrast with your peers and you will make nothing of a career in mathematics. How about that? I'd never had anything like that in my life, but somehow I said, sir, what have you got to offer me that's better than what I already have? And he came out to my amazement with the philosophy of Emile Bergson, which I happened to know about because I'd read Lewis. And I just said, if that's all you have to offer me, I'll take the risk and stay with what I've got. And I got up and walked out. That completely changed my life in the sense that it put steel into my heart. And I decided there and then, I'm not going to sell my soul for my subject. If that's the dark side of academia, which it is. You see, if that man had been a Christian and I'd been an atheist, he'd probably have lost his job the next day. But as it was, he kept it. And we get a lot of this. And you mentioned academic nervousness. Some of it has to do with that. I have met DPhil students in many universities and postdocs saying, if I mentioned that I went to church, I would be marked down. And I don't do that. And I feel for people like that. Now, I'm not saying what people should do. Some of you may be feeling like that right at this moment. My heart goes out to you. I had a full professor a couple of years ago start to weep as he was talking to me. And he said, my colleagues have silenced me. I said, what do you mean? He said, I don't mention my faith in God. They've cut me off completely because of political correctness and all this kind of stuff. So my heart goes out to you folks, because this is one of the major battles of our day. I was just fortunate to meet it very early on. And I decided that if ever I got to a position, which I'm in now, of having 
a, a pretty decent academic course, the last thing I'm going to do is browbeat people because I've seen what it does. So it's enormously important, but in the calm and quiet of our hearts, it seems to me that we do have a battle because God could have given me a better brain than I've got. He could have given me a more delightful singing voice or whatever, these various talents. Has he made a mistake? It can be a battle to get through that and just to accept, not in a fatalistic sense. One last story will illustrate this. I've spoken at many student conferences and I was talking about this precise subject. And when I'd finished, a girl got up, walked to the front and turned so that we could all see her face. Half of it was beautiful. The other half was marred by a very, very distorting and ugly birthmark. And of course we fell silent. And she said, I just want to say before God and you all that this is the first time in my life that I feel I've been able to come to terms with the way I am. And I'm not being fatalistic, but I want to publicly thank God. And you know, there wasn't a dry eye in the place. This is a very real question that you're asking. And there are no easy answers to it because I used to think, and I'll finish with this at this point, um, that when I got to 30, I'd have solved all the uh, big questions and then I'd begin to live. And I put this to somebody once and they said to me, you got it wrong. Solving these problems is living. And mm. you know, that has helped me for years. Solving the problems is actually living. And following God and seeking his government, praying, reading scripture, and that's often the first thing that goes. We think we know it all. We forget our daily food, not our actual physical meals, but our spiritual meals. But that's enough of that question, probably. Thank you. Um, okay, so the next section is a little bit more um, of an apologetics nature. Um, so my first question is, uh, Gottfried Leibniz, the philosopher, he famously asked of the universe, why is there something rather than nothing? Um, Christians and other theists will want to answer this question by saying that ultimately the universe exists because God made it. And if asked who made God, we might say nobody, God just is. Um, Bertrand Russell, another famous philosopher, found this Christian answer to be very frustrating. He said that it makes equal sense to say that the universe just is, to say that God just is. Um, the universe is a brute fact. So what do you make of this idea that the universe just is um, and that it could always have been? Even if we accept the big, that the Big Bang happened, um, surely it must have happened somewhere. And that place could have always been. <laughs> well, I've always found Bertrand Russell very frustrating when you get away from mathematics. Because if he's saying that two things are equal, God is a brute fact, the universe is a brute fact, that gets you nowhere. Because you haven't resolved the tension between the two things. Except that he didn't really believe that. He believed the universe was a brute fact. And that puzzles me as a scientist, and I'm not the only one. Paul Davis, whom I know, uh, who's not a theist, he says, isn't that curious, scientists saying this, when 
the biggest thing of all is simply a brute fact and they're not asking questions that isn't a scientific attitude at all it's not even a rational approach so i'm not very impressed when people take that view now of course leibniz question is a fascinating question I, i'm just republishing a book on that question called god and stephen hawking because hawking is dead and i wrote a book uh, earlier, I've re revised it, and he claims to be able to answer the question, why is there something rather than nothing? And it's a very important question. And of course, um, this idea uh, that uh, some people are asked, who made God? And we say nobody. No, we say a great deal more, I hope. Because the question, who made God, needs to be logically unpacked. If you say who or what made X, you're assuming X is made. That is, X is created. But you see, the central biblical claim is God is not created. The question doesn't even apply to him. Now, if you've seen my debate with Dawkins, we had a spat over this. <laughs> a very interesting spat. Because I made the point that if you are postulating a created God, by saying who made God, then I don't need to talk about it because all of us think probably that created gods, we often call them idols, are just a fiction of the imagination. You see, the question is what philosophers call a simple question, which means it conceals reality. It's not actually addressing the issue. It doesn't deal with the concept that God might be eternal. Because if God's eternal, to ask who created God is absurd, you see. So you have to face that. So what is it a question about? It's a question about where the questions stop. Who made the creator? Who made the creator that made the creator? Do the questions go back infinitely? No, they don't, either on the Christian side or on the atheist side. On the Christian side, I would say God is eternal. He is the creator. To ask who made him doesn't make sense. But my atheist friends normally stop at the universe, the multiverse, or these days, the most popular view is nothing created everything, you see. So that both sides actually stop. And then you have to ask, what is the evidence? And that's what I want to discuss in my book. So it's a, I, I find this a very fruitful area for discussing the nature of of god himself because so many people these days like hawking think that christians believe that god is a kind of greek god a, a divinity who's actually a projection of our own imagination and not an eternal God who created the universe and holds it in being. So there's a lot of fruitful area uh, for discussing here. And I, I think it's very important to do that. And I'm staggered at people that say, oh, the universe is just a brute fact. Aren't you curious? Is that where you stop? What evidence have you got that the universe is just a brute fact? Because you see, we have the whole question of the admitted fine-tuning of the universe which even hawking said demands an explanation it's not as simple as that um just one point of clarification so um are you saying that you reject the conception of god as a brute fact as well 
that it would be wrong to say that God is a brute fact. Or the well, define fact. brute for me and I'll tell you. Oh, no. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Um, <laughs> I guess just something See, that... It's the assumption behind that. If you want to argue philosophically God is a necessary being uh, in the philosophical sense, then I will suspect that that is exactly true. But then... Yeah. There is evidence for that. There's logic and evidence, philosophical evidence, biblical evidence, and all the rest of it. I think the use of the word brute is the one I would want more carefully defined. Because if I stood up and say, I just believe God is a brute fact, I'd be knocked down very rapidly. Okay, thank you. Um, all right, I'm going to maybe skip some of my questions. Um, but maybe we can get back to them in the Q&A. So I've got two more then. Um, so firstly, we can't escape the fact that the Bible is full of bizarre accounts of the supernatural and that Christianity is a supernatural worldview. Um, but a lot of us modern Western Christians are very shy and perhaps even ashamed to talk about some of these more strange aspects of the supernatural. For example, angels, demons, exorcisms, healings. Um, I'm South African and I have friends here in South Africa who have told me about their experiences of witchcraft, for example. Um, and you know, a friend of mine said that she was, uh, a curse was put on her and she got sick. She intuitively didn't feel like it was a medical problem. She prayed for help from God and got rid of the cursed items and the sickness left her. Um, now I'm inclined to believe my friend. I don't think that she's lying to me or that she's particularly loopy. Um, anyway, so my question is, why do you think that a lot of us Christians are very shy to talk about some areas of the supernatural, like angels and demons, but we want to, um, we want to talk boldly about other areas of the supernatural, like Jesus's resurrection? Well, I think that instinct has a lot going for it, because since the naturalistic worldview bans the supernatural by definition, then we want to put our best arguments first. And it's no accident that the early Christians burst on the world and their major message was Jesus is risen from the dead. That is evidence that he's the son of God. He's the coming judge. You need to repent and trust him. And so I think it's a correct instinct to go for the big things first. The second point I'd make is none of us believe all claims to the supernatural because there are stories of statues weeping and all this kind of thing. And we don't rush into believing that. Now, where I think it's important is to use the criterion of evidence base. What is the evidence base for those beliefs? Now, scripture claims that there is a supernatural dimension. Very clearly, Christianity is supernatural. And C.S. Lewis is one of the best reminders of that. And it tells us not only is there a supernatural dimension, part of that dimension is in the spirit world. And that is partly good and partly evil. And so when you encounter something like you've done South Africa and I've done 
in parts of Africa and you are inclined to believe your friend is what you said. What that is telling me is you feel the evidence in the trustworthiness of your friend is enough and her account of it to take what she says seriously. And I've no reason to doubt that. My uh, limited experience of such things would lead me to expect it. But the problem is that unless people have a sense in which the world is bigger than naturalism offers, to offer them that kind of story first is often a mistake because they will say, oh, well, that's only what you think and she's your friend and I haven't. So you have to deal with the resurrection of Jesus first because you have not only the question of the historical evidence, you've got the testability of Christianity. Now, this is very important, especially for those of you who are scientists by background. People often say to me, I don't understand your Christianity because you're a mathematician, you believe in, in testing things, particularly in science and physics and so on. I say, yes, well, you can't test Christianity. I said, who told you that? Of course you can. And the point is that Jesus claimed that because he was to rise from the dead, that people who trusted him, repented and trusted him with their lives would experience a number of things such as peace with God, forgiveness of sins, transformation of life. And we've all experienced it, I trust, seeing people we knew who maybe were in utter despair, who were addicted to alcohol or drugs or something. You meet them six months later and, you, and they're radiant. And you say, what's happened to you? And they may say, well, I met Christ. I became a Christian. I trusted Jesus. And they'll put it different ways. But there's no arguing against the transformation. And that is evidence of the supernatural. So I'm not shy of it at all, but I'm shy of advancing the cause by dealing with peripheral claims. And the more peripheral they are, um, the less keen I am to do it. But there's another consideration altogether. And I would strongly recommend all of you if you've not done it before, to reread C.S. Lewis' book on miracles. Now that book has a chapter, I think it's three or four, that's philosophically quite difficult. And many people stop reading at that point. I did myself. And that's a huge mistake. If you don't like the chapter about the difference between ground and consequent, just turn over the pages and keep reading. And one of the most important things Lewis has to say is, that human rationality is supernatural. You see, we often think that the first place to go for the supernatural is so-called miracles. Now the word miracle, uh, miraculum, a wonder in Latin, doesn't really appear in the New Testament. John calls them signs, semion, from which we get semiotics. That is, they point to who Jesus is by describing something that he did that shows he's Lord of creation. And this is a lengthy argument, but I believe it's an important one that Lewis points out that we do a lot of thinking, but very little thinking about thinking. And if you reduce thinking 
to purely naturalistic effects of the movements of atoms in the brain, then you wouldn't know anything at all. And he points out that this destroys thinking itself. And any argument that invalidates thinking cannot be true because you get it by thinking. Now, Lewis is well worth reading on this, as is Alvin Plantinga. And these days, perhaps even more so, is the atheist philosopher, Thomas Nagel. And he's seen the problem. And he wrote a book about it called Mind and Cosmos. And that is phenomenally interesting because he sees there's a problem with naturalism, that if it's true, it undermines rationality. And that brings me back to a point I made earlier, that mathematics seems to work and to espouse a naturalistic theory that doesn't allow for the supernatural nature of human rationality, destroys, invalidates human thinking. And that's no good for any scientists, whether they're Christian or not. Thank you. Okay, I've got one more question before we have a short break. Um, uh, you've spent many years evangelizing, both in an official capacity, working with organizations like Operation Mobilization, for example, um, and also in an unofficial capacity, speaking to your friends and family and colleagues. Um, over the years, what have you learned about evangelism? <laughs> How many hours have you got? Two minute answer. <laughs> well, listen, I got to do a bit of shameless advertising because thinking of your questions, some of them, and the business of fear as an academic and the problems of witnessing that you're now raising. I've written a little book, which is the cheapest book you'll ever buy, Have No Fear. And it's written for young people, students, postgraduates, and so on, to share exactly what you've asked me as to what I've learned about sharing. I'm only going to make one point, which is the central point in that book, which is this. And you're all familiar with Peter's statement, always be ready to give a reason to anybody that asks you, uh, sorry, always be ready to give a defense, an apologia, to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is within you. And I used to puzzle over what that meant to anyone that asks you. Well, not many people were asking me. You see, we often think of evangelism in terms of we communicate the message. But Peter is envisaging dialogue, one-to-one -one discussion. And my responsibility is to try and stimulate people to ask me about my hope. Now, when you begin to think about it that way, that gives us marvelous opportunities. But I learned this from another student who was younger than me, a very gifted evangelist at Cambridge. And I, I said, look, nobody ever asks me. That's the trouble. I think I've got something to say, but nobody ever asks. He said, have you tried asking them? I said, no. Why should I do that? Because they've no hope. He said, try asking them. And I never forget what happened. I was going down to London a couple of days later. And um, I, the man next to me was reading a scientific journal. And I said, are you a scientist? He said, yes, I'm a metallurgist. Uh, what are you? You're a student, obviously. He was a professor. I said, yes, I'm doing mathematics. And he went on reading his book. So I took out a New Testament and started reading it, made sure he could see what I was reading. 
And after a while, he said, excuse me. And I said, fine, what is it? He said, is that a New Testament you're reading? And I said, yes, it is. And I went on reading. <laughs> and of course, his curiosity got the better of him. <laughs> and he stopped again and he said, look, I don't mean to be rude, but you said you were a mathematician and you're reading the New Testament. I said, that's right. And then I remembered what my friend had said. He said, why are you reading the New Testament? I said, tell me, what hope have you got? <laughs> and there was dead silence. He went white in the face. I thought he was going to faint. He said, I guess we'll all just muddle through. I said, you know, I didn't mean that. What hope have you personally got? He said, none whatsoever. Have you got any hope? <laughs> and I said, yes, I have. And I explained it to him. You know, I've learned over the years, the best way to get to know people is by asking them questions. Not about the Christian faith, but about them. Get to know them and not simply what they do, who they are. And I often say to people, if you want to try an interesting sociological group experiment, put 20 people in a room and ask them to get to know each other without ever asking the question, what do you do? It's most interesting because if, and here's my little rule, I don't always keep it being a voluble Irishman. It's simple. If you meet somebody new, keep asking them a question until they ask you one. Now, some people are frightful bores and will never, but most people will. And that is the way to start a friendship. And I feel that's one of the biggest things I've ever learned. And the second biggest thing is when you can't answer a question is to admit it honestly and say, you know, I'm sorry, I've never heard that before. I'd love to think about it. Would you mind if I did think about it? And perhaps we can meet for coffee next week. You will never lose face by doing that. And that gets you out of all kinds of difficulties. But as I say, my little book, Have No Fear, is full of things like this written in the university context. Thank you very much for your time, Professor Lenas. Um, we're gonna have a 10 minute break now and we'll consolidate the questions that um, we've received.